Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. Thanks for having me today. Uh, Yeah, my name is Ron Williams. I'm the uh, Director of Outreach for the Health Justice Recovery Alliance here in Oregon. I'm also one of the co-chairs of the Ballot Measure 110 uh, Oversight and Accountability Council, and, and our job is to implement the law uh, as the voters intended uh, in terms of the Oversight and Accountability Council. We're responsible for developing the rules and requirements for the access to care grants, increasing access to care grants, and also for the behavioral health resource networks that are part of the law, which are uh, networks of organizations that come together to provide services in each county throughout Oregon, according to the law. And those services are harm reduction, uh, low barrier treatment, housing, and peer support services. Uh, probably also want to mention that I'm a person in long-term recovery, which means, which to me means I've been alcohol and drug-free for going on 22 years. I started off uh, homeless and jobless back in the late 90s and was able to, through kind of a commitment to service, spiritual growth, and personal development, uh, change my life for the better. And I've, and, uh, and that's led to my being, led to my becoming a community organizer focused on recovery issues. I'm one of the people that founded the National Recovery Movement and uh, faces and voices of recovery in Washington, D.C., a national advocacy organization that de- deals with stigma and discrimination and laws as it relates to people who have substance use issues. And I've been a community organizer working on everything from homelessness, to police accountability, and other issues for in Oregon for the past 20 years. Now, Measure 110, the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act, passed overwhelmingly in Oregon's November 2020 general election. For the benefit of listeners who may not be familiar with it, give me some background on Measure 110. Uh, What was it intended to address? Right. So, Ballot Measure 110 uh, essentially removed drugs as an excuse for police to stop, detain, arrest, and harass people of color. What it did, it decriminalized small personal use amounts of drugs. And uh, it established the, and it also allocates uh, cannabis revenue to be used to establish recovery services for people throughout Oregon. And um, there was significant disparities in the arrest rates, detention rates, and conviction rates, and incarceration rates for people of color in Oregon. And the intent was to, of decriminalization was to reverse those trends and we're actually already seeing a reverse in those trends. 
Uh, prior to Measure 110, about 9,000 people a year were incarcerated for drugs, a significant percentage, a disproportionate amount of people of color, Black, Latinx, tribal, and Native folks. And we've already seen those numbers drop significantly in 2020 and 2021, particularly 2021, that number has dropped from over 9,000 people to more in the range of 400 or 500. The law specifically, in addition to decriminalizing addiction, you know, the, the shift that we're making or that we want to make is moving away from a uh, criminalizing people who have substance use to providing health and recovery services to those folks. Um, we want to shift the paradigm a little bit or significantly so that people are, instead of being thrown in jail and getting uh, convictions that ruin their lives and uh, cause them to have trouble with uh, housing and jobs and financial advancement. Uh, we want to remove those barriers and those obstacles that come with those arrests and convictions and incarceration. We want to replace that system with uh, a health-based approach. And that's the fundamental idea behind Measure 110, decriminalizing small personal use amount and increasing access to recovery and treatment services. Measure 110 DATRA approved by voters last year. It's not a lot of time. The, the, the changes in criminal law, the real decriminalization, um, that went into effect quickly. And it's the other part, which you just, uh, the, which you just went over the, the recovery services, the recovery services. Yeah. um, What's been happening with that? It's only say it's only been a few months. Has that started to have any impact yet? The uh, the the recovery services section. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So the uh, so once the law was passed, you know, it's one thing to pass a law and have a ballot measure, and it and uh, but it's another thing to turn it into statute. And so in order for it to uh, and statute then administrative rules. And so without getting, without getting too wonky, what I can say is the uh, uh, once the law was passed, it called for a number of things. One, uh, so uh, the law went into effect December of 2020. Uh, and, and then in February 1st of 2021, decriminalization went into effect. The uh, it, Oversight Accountability Council which is made up of people with lived experience, Black, Latinx, Native, tribal folks, uh, alcohol and drug counselors, people who run programs, people who have been in the trenches providing services, uh, make up the majority of the council. And uh, that went into effect and they're responsible for developing the rules and requirements for the behavioral health resource networks and the access to care grants that went into effect. They were put together in um, February of 2021. And then a statewide hotline was established for the citation process. There's a citation process where associated with Measure 110 that connects people to recovery services if they get a citation. And the way that works is the officer could gives a person a ticket. The, per, uh, the officer is required to tell the person about the opportunity that they can get a screening to get the fine associated with the with the citation waived, and in order to get the citation waived, you call a hotline. You get a what is called a screening for a, a, a brief alcohol and drug assessment screening. That uh, once completed, then the Alliance for Life will send a verification to the circuit court, 
that the person has completed the screening. And if the person wants to uh, get additional services, they can ask for additional services that include housing, uh, treatment, harm reduction, peer support. And so, so that was February 1st. Another thing that happened in 2020, early in 2021, the Health Justice Recovery Alliance through its advocacy was that, you know, we started meeting with the uh, governor's office, the Oregon Health Authority and the legislature, particularly key members of the legislature and leadership in legislature, uh, because we were hearing from, you know, due to COVID, the wildfires and, uh, and, uh, and other issues uh, kind of folks exiting the behavioral health system and uh, struggles in the behavioral health system, we were hearing that there was a need for an immediate investment of funds to kind of stand up organizations that were struggling and to help uh, get services out in areas that were that had uh, urgent needs. And so the legislature approved over $30 million uh, in 2021 that was handed to the Oversight and Accountability Council who did a proposal process that resulted in over 70 organizations in Oregon receiving funds. So this $30 million went out in June and July and August to uh, 70 organizations in 26 different counties, uh, rural organizations, metropolitan organizations, coastal, eastern Oregon, uh, gorge organizations, and, uh, and that was very significant. Uh, it was significant in the sense that one of the things that detractors of the law were saying was that there was sort of a cart before the horse that we were decriminalizing without providing the services. So we got the services up and running as fast as we could. And so many organizations are providing the very services already that were promised by the law. We're really happy with that. In addition to that, the uh, Oversight and Accountability Council then turned its attention to the uh, the work of standing up the behavioral health resource networks. And in order to create rules, it began meeting uh, over the spring and summer to develop rules for the behavioral health resource networks. It was able to post rules according to the timeline of Senate Bill 755. Senate Bill 755 was uh, made uh, style and form changes. It had added clarifications and provided additional detail to the to the measure so that the law becomes operational and statute. And uh, so the, once the temporary rules were filed, the Oversight and Accountability Council then turned its work to the process of the permanent rules and then developing the request for proposals for the behavioral health resource networks. Uh, the legislature allocated over 300, they allocated $300 million to the development of the behavioral health resource networks. And so the Oversight and Accountability Council has already finished its process of developing uh, of the rules advisory process, uh, getting community input from a rules advisory committee. And we've, and we've also finished the request for proposals and announced it and uh, it was posted on November 9th. And what, and so what that, and so for the next month will be the Oversight and Accountability Council will be taking in proposals from all over the state, from organizations coming together to develop these networks of services in every county. Then uh, the middle of December, the evaluation process is gonna begin for those grants. And 
Uh, we'll finalize the decision making probably the second week of January and then start sending out um, letters of agreement or notice of uh, awards and letters of agreement would happen in February. And the burns would start actually become operational uh, in late uh, March, early April, as the funds get out to the community. And so this $300 million investment is huge. It's five times the investment that's the or that the state of Oregon has made in, uh, pre in prior years. And uh, it's significant. We have the process of folks applying is happening right now. The evaluation process is gonna take four weeks uh, after we close the four week uh, opportunity. And, uh, and then uh, we'll begin the process of considering access to care grants to fill in the blanks in the communities uh, to add additional services on top of the health resource networks to make sure that no matter where you are in Oregon, you'll be able to access uh, a service provider who can provide uh, uh, low barrier treatment, peer support, uh, harm reduction, supportive housing, recovery housing, or transitional housing. And those are very, very key to changing and shifting how treatment is done in Oregon. The combination of peers, transitional housing, and outpatient is treatment. And it's and so instead of instead of folks waiting around three and six months to get into a treatment program, an inpatient resident residential treatment program, people are able to get the support they need to be able to get stabilized and 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 be connected to services and not have to be in those long wait lists, be on a waiting list and be waiting for a particular bed. You can actually get the services you need, the support you need and get the uh, intensive outpatient and case management and all those things are available through the behavioral health resource networks. And that's a great new change for Oregon. And all that in less than a year. I mean, the as we're recording this, the vote itself was barely over a year ago. So, I mean, this is all this in just less than in still less than a year and i mean on the one hand i suppose it helps because service providers are i mean there is a network of service providers around the state there are people that are working to deliver these services and have been but the impressive part is getting the state to move and to shift that much money that quickly i mean a lot of places are complaining about um their providers being starved um starved of funds and that's a uh it's a serious concern. Right. And that's kind of the, the system is, yeah, I, I've read and recently a lot about the system in Oregon. I've been kind of paying particular attention to an analysis of Oregon's publicly funded substance use treatment system from the uh, Oregon Criminal Justice Commission that was published in September of 2019. And they paint a relatively somewhat dire picture of kind of the how treatment is uh, managed in the state of Oregon. They point to uh, a number of factors as to why, but they don't really reach any conclusions. Uh, it's just important to note that uh, the vast majority of the addiction of the treatment services in Oregon are Medicaid funded. I was speaking to a uh, provider uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about the mix of uh, funds that they have for 
uh, providing treatment services. And what she said was that uh, it's 97% Medicaid, 3% private insurance. And so, and so uh, because of the, because uh, a lot of housing and peer support and harm reduction isn't covered by Medicaid. And so by being able to add these additional uh, elements to the, alongside and in addition to the existing system, we're actually taking the pressure off the system and allow that to, and which will uh, allow that system to operate a little more efficiently and a little more effectively. We're not responsible for that system. We're alongside and in addition to. And so one of the things also about Measure 110 funds, because there are other funds, they're, uh, they're in a special category. So we're able to cover folks who are undocumented and people who are underinsured, people who are between Medicaid eligibility and being able to afford quality insurance. So, and so um, that's another huge benefit of the Measure 110 funds. And um, housing and peers, harm reduction, particularly housing, you know, being able to do emergency housing, transitional housing, supportive housing, which we kind of could we consider housing first, which doesn't have like an alcohol and drug-free requirement, uh, which can be managed by harm reductionists who are able to get people into housing right away and then support them with the need, with their needs, whether it's a, a wound care or, uh, or wound care or just basic necessities, you know, uh, they're able to provide everything that they need in order to stabilize their lives and uh, help them to stay well, uh, to, to achieve the wellness that they see. And it's not like we're a, the, it's not a treatment, present, treatment center or program telling you in order for you to be in this program, you have to do X, Y, and Z. The nice thing about Measure 110 is that it's really directed by the interest and, and the uh, desire of the person seeking the services to kind of really help uh, guide, you know, what their quality, best quality of life is. And that's what the uh, harm reduction element allows to do. And that's kind of what the supportive housing is which is, you know, surrounding people with the support that they need in order to stay housing, to stay in the housing and to improve the quality of their life by their own definition. That was a conversation with Ron Williams. He's a community organizer and outreach director for the Health Justice Recovery Alliance. Find them on the web at healthjusticerecovery.org. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. The Prison Policy Initiative is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that produces cutting edge research to expose the broader harm of mass criminalization and to spark advocacy programs to create a more just society. They recently released a report called Show Me the Money, tracking the companies that have a lock on sending funds to incarcerated people. Now, I wanted to talk to my guest, Wanda Bertram, who's a communications strategist at the Prison Policy Initiative, about that report. But just today, as we're recording this, just today, they issued another new report, which which kind of relates to JPay and in fact provides some of the context for what this thing is I'm talking about. The, the title here on the blog, For the Poorest People in Prison, It's a Struggle to Access Even Basic Necessities. A survey of all 50 states and the, Bureau, and the Bureau of Prisons reveals that prisons make it hard for people to qualify as indigent, and even those who do qualify receive limited resources. Now, as I say, the this so relates to to JPay and the what I wanted to ask you about anyway. Could you 
give us an overview of this um, of this new report on on indigents. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, of course, Doug. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that for folks who don't already know, JPay is a subsidiary of a giant company called Securus, and Securus is one of the biggest telecom providers to prisons and jails anywhere in the country. Now, JPay uh, was hit recently with the consumer uh, by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau with a six million dollar fine. Nothing to sneeze at in you know an industry like this. They were hit with a six million dollar fine for deceiving and exploiting people who were their consumers, uh, formerly incarcerated people. Uh, so JPay has a number of different services that it provides to prisons, and one of those one of those services uh, involves. Uh, the money that people get when they leave prison. So that might be accumulated wages that you've earned while you're inside. It could be money that was taken from you when you entered and now they have to give it back because you're leaving. It can be all these things. And what prisons have been doing is that they've been contracting with JPay to actually return people their money on prepaid debit cards. And the way that JPay has been doing this is by giving people cards that are so riddled with fees, you know, fees to check your balance, fees to withdraw money, fees because you didn't use your account for long enough, that people end up with like nothing left in their accounts. So the CFPB uh, over in Washington, D.C. notices this. They hit JPay with a $6 million fine. Now, I think it probably would interest people in Oregon to know that this is a company that contracts with your state prison system. And they, they contract with the Oregon Department of Corrections for, uh, I think, a couple different services. But one of the services is the subject of our new report. Uh, our new report, Show Me the Money, is about the cost of transferring money from uh, your bank account to the trust account of an incarcerated uh, loved one. So if you want to send money uh, to a friend and they happen to be in prison, you might find yourself paying insane fees, like, a, like 10 or 20% of your total deposit. And that's because the companies that are providing this inmate banking service are skimming uh, a decent amount off the top. In Oregon, uh, which uses a couple different companies for this, it uses uh, JPay, and then it uses IC Solutions. Uh, you can, if you if you send twenty dollars, if you de- deposit twenty dollars in a loved one's account um, using JPay, you're going to pay a four dollar fee. So that's a twenty percent fee on your twenty dollar deposit. If you use IC Solutions, it's even worse. You end up with a five ninety five fee, which is thirty percent of your total deposit. Um, if you deposit more money, it's a little bit better. Uh, you'll only pay, let's see, a 14% fee, more or less. Um, but either way, I mean, this is crazy compared to what you and I would do. So Doug, if I was going to send you money, or if you're going to send me money, we'd probably use Venmo or Cash App or one of those apps. And it would it'd basically be free. Um, but because people are in prison, they're subject to all of these privatization initiatives that have happened over the last few decades. And that's how folks end up in these really exploitative situations. Some context for this. What do people in prison actually have to pay for? That's a great question. Uh, they have to pay for a hell of a lot of stuff. If you're incarcerated, uh, you'll probably have to pay for uh, paper to write on if you want to write to your family members or to your lawyer or to the court if you're you know, appealing your own case pro se. You'll probably have to pay for envelopes and stamps too. Uh, you're going to have to pay for phone calls. Uh, if you want to go see the doctor, in most states you have to pay a copay, which most people don't know. You have to pay a copay in prison. Uh, if you're not getting enough food uh, given to you uh, via the meals that they provide, you're going to want to buy some, buy a little bit more 
to supplement that so that you can stay healthy, now you're going to have to go to the commissary to get that. Um, if you're sick and you need over-the-counter medicine, you're going to have to go to the commissary to get that too. Soap, toothpaste, toothbrushes, deodorant, all these basic things that we would think are free are actually not free for people in prison. And that's why it's so important uh, for family members to be able to send them money and why it's so unfortunate that when they do send them money, they see all this money skimmed off the top and, and taken by these companies. The uh, this report you're talking about um, indigence that uh, that what, let's see most prison systems claim to provide assistance to people who are extremely poor or in correctional policy terms indigent. However, the your new survey reveals that these indigence policies are extremely limited, um, both in who they help and the amount of assistance provided. Can you can you give us just an overview? Right. So this is our new report. You know, we've got this report about money transfers, and then we have this new report that we just released today. And this new one is, is pretty related because like I was saying a second ago, a lot of prisons don't give people enough of these basic essentials like food and hygiene items and medication um, for free in order for people to live a, a dignified life, a remotely dignified life behind bars without having their own source of money. Um, when prisons withhold those things, incarcerated people have two options. Either you can work a prison job to make a little money and get your needs met, or you can try and qualify as quote unquote indigent, which is uh, the prison's way of saying you're, you're ultra poor and so we're gonna give you some stuff for free. And so that, that's why we were interested in, you know, what are these criteria for indigents in prison? You know, like what do people have to do to prove that they are poor enough to, you know, to get free soap, toothpaste, et cetera, et cetera. And what we found, um, I won't go into the particular requirements in Oregon. You're welcome to go to our website and read the appendix because it's a little complicated for Oregon. Um, but what we found nationally is that there are 13 states that require people to have less than $5 in their, uh, what's called an inmate trust account to qualify as indigent. So what that means is that if you have $6, even if you're looking at uh, a much higher, you know, budget than six dollars to buy all the things that you need, soap, toothpaste, et cetera, et cetera. And you're you still can't qualify to get any of those items for free because you haven't cleared the uh, financial criteria, right? Uh, in 18 states, we found that even if you get some stuff for free, as soon as you get any money in your inmate trust account from a family member or from a prison job, they suck it right back out to pay them back for what they gave you for free. Um, there's four states that have a work requirement. So in addition to needing to be extremely, extremely poor to get anything for free in prison, uh, you need to also prove that you are working or trying to work a prison job. And these are really insidious requirements because going back to what I was saying before, uh, people who are in prison who can't, um, who don't have a lot of money have two choices to get their needs met. Either you try to qualify as indigent or you have to work a prison job. People will ask, is prison labor really slavery? And I would say, if you have no other choice but to work a prison job in order to get these basic needs met, that is slavery. That's, that's, that's I think, as good a definition of slavery as any. And it's not like these jobs pay minimum wage or anything even even approaching. I mean, it's I mean, insulting is, a, is, is even too mild. For the, uh, That's for the right. Amounts. Most people are making a, a sense on the hour uh, for prison jobs. That was my conversation with Wanda Bertram. She's a communications strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. Find them on the web at prisonpolicy.org. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. 
Find this and other installments of Prison Pipeline on the web at kboo.fm slash prison pipeline. You'll also find a link there to subscribe to the Prison Pipeline podcast. Prison Pipeline has a Facebook page. It's at facebook.com slash prison pipeline. Please give its page a like. Share it with friends. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVay saying so So long. Some little foolish thing Some simple thing that I have done Then just a soul's intentions I try so hard, so please